Hey guys, and welcome to the Legal Point of View podcast. This podcast is aimed to break down the law into bite-sized amount, engage more people from non-law and law backgrounds in understanding laws, the British legal system, and improve their legal literacy. The information we provide is food for thought. We are not qualified lawyers and seek legal advice from a professional if necessary. So today's topic is about nationality. And I think this is a very current topic today. Uh, especially with the whole Shemima, Shemima, Shemima <laughs> case that's happening. Uh, so what is your understanding of citizenship, Fanadi? Like when, I guess... Like now or like before I studied law? Now, I don't know, both? I think before, before I studied like asylum and immigration law, I, I didn't realise the distinction between the two. I thought they were just... Um, one and of the same yeah um and I literally just understood it as being British or not being British yeah but I never actually thought what is it that makes you British and what isn't until actually we got to sixth form I think it was sixth form when they started the British values thing until they started that and I was like okay Loki these are just international values not necessarily British values but cool yeah um I think that's when the distinction probably first kicked in for me then now post-studying law I obviously understand the dynamics of both terms yeah um yeah what about you I feel like like me it's a bit different because like I wasn't born in this country a lot (laughs) of people don't know that so we came here in 1998 so I was born in Pakistan uh but you know, by the way, I didn't know I wasn't born here until like, <laughs> yeah, I swear to God, <laughs> I didn't know I was I wasn't born here until I was maybe fifteen or sixteen. Yeah. Fifteen. It was like I don't remember if it was when I went to Pakistan, um, or if it was when I was applying for something and it asked me for my um date of birth, like like where I was from, yeah, like my um place of birth. And I needed my passport, and I was just like, "Oh, like I'm not, I'm not born here. You know, from here." <laughs> so I feel like from then on, I started to realize that I don't know. I, I don't know. I just started to like see. I started to feel like I don't want to say the other, but kind different. of like, like a different. Yeah. Um, I started understanding. Like I had like some knowledge of like nationality and like the whole concept of being British because like the whole idea that I wasn't born here kind of like played into it yeah and I think a lot of people do face that even if whether you are born here or not yeah anyone who has um like someone someone of different like ethnicity if that makes sense so like if you're not English British but like say for example you're Pakistani British or Somali British or whatever you always have that um dual identity maybe yeah. is that how you want to say it yeah exactly and um it's really interesting because uh my dad does have um dual nationality yeah so he's british he has a british passport and a pakistani passport yeah. whereas i don't or my older sister doesn't nor does my mom mm-hmm. and my none of my younger siblings don't either and like i don't know like sometimes like i could get one because i was born there and it's easier for me but like this whole like case thing and like with everything happening I haven't got it and then with the whole like case thing like it makes me really question on whether to get it or not because scary yeah it's scary because I could they could literally say go back to Pakistan yeah and yeah I mean like I feel like nationalism can be positive and negative like it can be positive because it kind of brings this like sense of identity and like when it comes to football yeah olympics people feel like they're all together and they're like supporting their team and all of that but at the same time it can be very negative when it comes to xenophobia racism yeah Um, and even i think it, it depends on the context because yeah for me i'm like obviously i'm british and i was born here but i'm also somali and i think even within being somali it's quite complex depending on where you come from I think maybe just to explain that for a bit, I'm from like Northern Somalia, which is the Republic of Somaliland. And it's like an, an independent country that's autonomous, but without recognition. And I think the part that nationalism probably p- plays a part for me is 
after the genocide it's really important to know your identity and where you come from and yeah. I think it's that uh, nationalism mixed with patriotism that like especially with us in the diaspora that kind of it rebuilds our country and holds on to our identity so I think nationalism in the context of like um, post-civil war post-genocide or post any kind of traumatic event I think is important just so you can have uh, your identity but also so that you aren't erased from history yeah and so you just remember, as a reminder yeah you remember those who kind of struggled as well exactly before you and yeah yeah I agree with that as well I think it it's, it's dangerous though like it, it if it if nationalism gets to the point where oh, it's it, i don't know how to describe it, but it happens with war, war yeah but even if you take away those traumatic events and if nationalism gets to the point where you suddenly become a gatekeeper on who is and is not british because of um their color of their skin their their religion their whatever um i, I think then is when it gets quite dangerous yeah like with everything going on in Britain, it's just I think there's like a website, by the way, like I was searching the other day where you can see like in your um local area how British people feel by typing your postcode. No way. Yeah. And um, Did you check your bar? Yeah, I did. And I think it said because it talks about like the English identity and the British identity and how like a lot of um English people are having like this identity crisis with <laughs> being English because you know what it is I think it's because like the ethnic minorities in Britain we kind of stick together yeah and we have a strong identity yeah and we have like some foundations built because of the people before us yeah into this country and uh like we have we kind of like have created this kind of path and like I feel English people uh, I don't know like they are like in the when you type in like your postcode and stuff and you see like the polls uh you can see like they they are struggling you know their sense of belonging and and it's interesting because like white identity isn't really talked about yeah and um when we focus about identity and stuff we always talk about like the black identity or the brown identity and the white identity is just seen as a default and that's like a whole ass race topic on it yeah i think it's a whole different but i think even in talking about what makes us black or brown or what whatever we're naturally talking about the white identity because the discussion on like brown and black identities is only had in rebuttal or or in a way to um counteract or like deal with the white identity that's that we constantly see whether that's like um whether that's like uh like netflix shows that have an all-white cast or whether you have um a company that has all white um members of the board or all white employees like i feel like the discussion on our identity is only because well not only because but it's a way to kind of deal with always being uh with white identity always being there whether you acknowledge it consciously or subconsciously does that make sense yeah i agree with that but i think that's from like from our kind of perspective I feel like white people or like the English identity they aren't really taught like they don't know that that they are also a race yeah but then I guess it goes down to identifying what what cultural traditions makes um like the English identity I think maybe we need to get an English person to yeah but yeah so the term nationality and citizenship are effectively similar, but because of like the complexity of our laws, nationality laws in the UK, it can get extremely confusing. The term nationality and citizenship started post World War One and Two, and so the British Nationality Act of 1948 was passed down by the UK for itself and its colonies. It was introduced by the Labour government, and it marked the first time that married British women gained independent nationality regardless of the citizenship of their spouses most of this 1948 act was replaced by the british nationality act 1981 this was a result of popular opposition to the immigration by the commonwealth citizens from asia and african of asian and african descent um the uk since then has gradually tightened controls on immigration um 
nationality, I think maybe if we just define it broadly, refers to the legal status which represents the country from which a person belongs to. Um, and there was this case, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but Liechtenstein and Guatemala, uh, 1955 and they defined nationality as a legal bond and having at its basis a social fact of attachment a genuine connection of existence interests and sentiments together with the existence of reciprocal rights and duties so I think maybe put more simply it refers to the legal bond between a person and a state that doesn't indicate a person's ethnic origin the status of nationality is acquired either by birth and inheritance. So if your parents are British, you are also British, or naturalisation, which means applying for British nationality. However, it does not work in reverse. If you have a child born in Britain, the parent cannot gain British nationality status through them. Um, it's based on international law that one has the right to enter or return the country that they came from. And in the UK, we have six different nationalities which include British citizen, British overseas territory citizen, British national overseas, British protected person, British subject and British overseas citizen. Yeah, so whereas citizenship refers to holding a bundle of civic rights, generally including the right to live and work in the territory of the state concerned, I guess an example could be, just to help our listeners understand, is that if a person, like if person A was born in France but had British parents, he or she would be British through inheritance because their parents, because person A's parents are British, but they can also apply for a French citizenship and have a dual citizenship. So they could have, their nationality is British, but they also have a British and French citizenship. I don't know if I've confused anyone at this way, <laughs> um, but it's actually more it's actually more complex than this and immigration law is extremely complicated but we've just kind of explained it in simple terms for the purpose of this podcast i think yeah it's also important to explain that some countries in the world do not allow um dual citizenship some of which are afghanistan china india djibouti malaysia singapore uh united arab emirates and Saudi Arabia I think that's really interesting you know the fact that some countries don't allow it and why do you think that is like aside from legal reasons like I think it's um it's this kind of like commitment to the country and loyalty yeah I think there is like a strong sense of self with the countries that we've listed particularly if we take um like Saudi Arabia for example there is no way you can gain what's it called citizenship unless you are Saudi Arabian, like, unless you are a person of Saudi Arabian descent. Yeah. And the with... same as, like, India and China. Yeah. And the very... UAE. Yeah, it's, like, this kind of strong um, self-identity thing that, you know, we are these countries and our citizens should be, shouldn't shouldn't be should able be to... Should be of this ethnic origin. I think that's important. It's, like... Yeah with the nationality or with citizenship rather you can gain it without being of that ethnic background so like for example us we're Brit- you're british pakistani i'm a british somali but with being a saudi arabian citizen you are going to be ethnically arab yeah exactly um so you can become british through either registration so these are people entitled to register as british citizens for example children of british citizens by descent and the six nationalities we explained earlier, or you can kind of obtain British nationality through application. And this is becoming more and more restrictive. So the requirements to apply for British nationality, it's some some of the requirements are controversial. So the, for the first one, you need to have uh, capacity. So you can't be of an unsound mind. The second one is period period of res- residence and you have to be living here in the UK for three years with a married person or five years on your own. The third one is type of res- residence. So you have to be free from restrictions and need to have a physical presence in this country. So people who are in detention without leave are physically present in the UK, but in immigration law, they are not legally present. The fourth one is the good character requirement. And this was extremely controversial. Um, 
so if someone who has a criminal record you that could possibly delay your chances of obtaining a um, nationality in the uk uh language requirement this was also controversial being able to have sufficient knowledge of english language uh knowledge of british society that came in 2002 and this was also very highly contentious uh so this requirement requires an applicant to show that he or she has sufficient knowledge about the life in the uk uh, the seventh requirement is a pledge, so you just take an oath. And the last requirement is, is intention to live in the UK, so you have to, like, intend to live in this country. So what do you think, Hanadi, of these, like, requirements, particularly the language and knowledge of British society? Um, sorry, I think before we get to that, what do they mean by capacity, not of unsound mind? Like, you know, like, with law, like, you can't... If you have an unsound mind, it means you haven't consented to something or um, you you don't understand what you're applying for. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. So, yeah, sorry. Uh, what do you think? So, you were saying good character requirement. I think... And the language one. And I... the language one. I think the language one, first of all, is just... I find that bizarre, like... I mean, I understand in practical terms why you would need it because once that person gets here you want them to be able to integrate into society either by, well, not either by, but one way could be when they start working, for example, they're obviously going to need English in the workplace. So I get why you'd want them to be able to speak English. Or if they if they want to go to school, if they want, even if they want to go to the doctor, they're going to need to have some means of communicating, which I understand. But by setting this requirement, you're eliminating a certain pool or a certain demographic of people from being able to apply to become a British citizen um uh, and I I don't know I just it doesn't sit quite well with me yeah same I feel like it kind of puts this kind of um like superiority kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh that you for you to come into our country you need to have some knowledge of English language when people can learn and it's not like and like English people like or people like us whatever like it would be difficult for us to go to a different country and know exactly have to have no have to know sufficient knowledge of I don't know say we wanted to go to Japan and the, the one of the requirements was um you need to have some sufficient knowledge of Japanese language yeah that that would be so hard for us exactly and yeah it, it, like the like again it just kind of comes across like we're superior kind of thing you need to know English language before you come into this country mm-hmm. and um the knowledge of British society I it, find that insane absolute insanity yeah w- what do you think of it what 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 does that even mean yeah that's to have sufficient sufficient knowledge yeah about life in the UK like I've seen the tests that they have to do by the way I was watching this YouTuber and she did the test and she failed herself and choose a British citizen. So if British citizens themselves are unable to pass this test, surely that makes the test obsolete or something. Like it doesn't I don't I don't understand what knowledge of British society could do for you. Again, maybe the argument could be made that it helps people integrate into society. But the type of questions such as um there was one question, it was like, How many wives did Henry the Eighth have? What does that do for you in modern society? Yeah. That's true as well. Like nothing. Yeah. I'll go back to your first point when you said, what does that even mean? Because what does knowledge of British society even mean? Mm -hmm. Because our society is so diverse. Like if you go London and you see, we have like so many different ethnicities, so many different like experiences and everything else. Like, are you like, what is. I don't understand if it was like a crash course on like British politics. So a person knows how to vote once they're able to vote. Or if, if it was like, if you're in need of emergency services, this is the information you would need. This is the knowledge you would need. If you have a child and you want to take them to school, this is how you register for school. Like, if it was practical knowledge about life in Britain, then cool, I get it. But knowing how many wives the king had, knowing which what the order of the monarchy, like, how, which king came before which queen, or knowing, like, just stuff like that, I, that, is, that doesn't really play a role in modern society yeah i I just i don't see the point of yeah i think i just think it's just it's just the way like you said earlier there's been more kind of restrictions on um 
immigration laws in the UK. So yeah. it's just another way to kind of like put that restriction, make it difficult for Definitely. people to um, access know, citizenship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Access because even if you think about it, like say say I wanted to take this test, not everyone has the same chances of passing this test because if there's someone who doesn't have access to knowledge from say a developing country I don't know if I just say like a person in Bangladesh that wants to come over here what chances do they have compared to someone from Canada who wants to come apply here it's like another barrier to choose the perfect immigrant if that makes sense yeah exactly yeah you just put it you've just said it spot on by the way the perfect immigrant um, yeah this idea that the perfect immigrant would know all of this like you have people coming from like 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 people who are refugees from war-torn areas and all these places and when they come here and they get and they get to stay here and want to apply for citizenship they would have to go through all of this yeah kind of like i just find it funny how like when you when you when you say the word immigrant they don't think of um an australian person living here you don't think of an american person living here Canadian person, a European person, anyone who looks remotely English would not be, would not, you would not think of them as an immigrant. You would not think of them as someone who's trying to become a British citizen. But suddenly, like, a slightly melanated person who wants to apply for British citizen is an immigrant. You reminded me of something. I read somewhere and it said, like, when British people live in, like, uh, countries like Saudi Arabia or all these immigrant sorry all of I was gonna say immigrant countries all of these <laughs> countries it's so embedded in us that we yeah, don't even realize all these countries yeah they're they're seen as like um what's the word expats expats yeah but when um people who want to come into this country they're just seen as immigrants whereas yeah. we give them like this fancy name when they move to like Pakistan or whatever whatever countries they want to go to mm-hmm. but when they come here when we like people like us come here we're seen as like immigrants and oh our jobs are being taken over or the NHS is being used and all of this kind of thing which by the way I would like to clarify um, if you come into this country, it takes you time to use um, the facilities in this country. Mm-hmm. You need to have identity documents. You need to be living in this, in this country for five years. You so actually have to this... pay for the NHS. They pay for yeah, the so pay yeah. for NHS. So people who say, oh, these immigrants are using NHS and um, all of this kind of stuff. It's, it's because not... they're paying for it. Imagine yeah, paying for something yeah, and not pay... using it. Exactly. They're paying for it. And it's not true that they're taking our benefits because they need to stay here to even get benefits i just wanted to clarify that because the ladies i get laser done from yeah, yeah laser hair removal and she <laughs> said she said to me like oh uh you know she's also ethnic minority and but she's like someone who's lived here for a really long time yeah i'm like one of those third generation people mm-hmm. and she was just like oh yeah like you know immigrants are taking our jobs or the europeans are taking, yeah the europeans are taking our jobs and when brexit was happening and i had to correct her i was like excuse me before we start a laser let me just correct you <laughs> before you remove the hair from my body let me yeah, correct let me you correct you first and then she just stayed quiet throughout the whole thing and i was just like unless you know about it like like do your research but i don't get where that complex comes from because just because you didn't come here, your grandma came here. So the benefits that your grandma fa- like had, you don't think others should. I don't know. Like, have that like pleasure or privilege as well. Like I don't, I don't get where that complex comes yeah, from. Yeah, I don't understand where that complex. I think it's like when you try too hard, and now they see themselves as like like they are British and everything. There's no doubt of that, but mm-hmm. they they are now picking on other people because they feel like oh they're part of this like country i don't know i to be honest i can't even explain like there's no, no i get what you mean though they've like not even integrated but assimilated so much with the british identity that now when new people are coming in that, who want to do the same thing they're suddenly the gatekeeper for all britishness yeah and they can like you know um pick on people and stuff and it's just like no and i had to correct her and she just stayed quiet and i was like please like you're from my community like how can you be saying stuff like this like talking about europeans like that when you are also a person of color and the same stigma is attached to her by the way because yeah when when you when when like say if we just take if we just if a white person was to look at her and was to look at um a person coming from romania they're not going to see a difference they're going to think you're both immigrants 
Yeah, exactly. So and- for her to try to um, maybe push away her immigrant identity doesn't make sense because in the eyes of an English person or some English people rather, she, even she's not considered British. Yeah, exactly. And I was just trying to explain to her how they don't use our services until later and they have to pay for it. And she just stayed quiet. And I was just like, you don't know. You have your phone. You are a well-off lady. Please, like, you know, you can do your research about these kind of stuff. I mean, I find it insane that, like, people still have these kind of views today. And, like, I'm all for kind of, like, diversity of thought. But I don't know, I feel like, you know, when when they're, like, brown or or black you kind of feel like they they should have this sense of like um like they should Should understand the struggle basically understand the struggle have some sympathy but yeah so how do you think stateless works so there's kind of three ways to to deprive a person of nationality uh renunciation deprivation and nullity we're going to be focusing on deprivation and statelessness um, as that with becoming stateless, rather. And under international law, a stateless person is someone who is not considered as a national by any state under the operation of its law. And the definition derives from Article 1 of the 1954 Convention relating to the status of a stateless person. And you cannot deprive a person of nationality if it makes them stateless. But the British Nationality Act of 1981 section 40 provides a power to deprive a person of his or hers british national british citizenship status Thanks, sister. <laughs> uh so do you think nationality is a human right hanadi yes <laughs> why do you think it's a human right there's so many reasons i don't even know where to start i think maybe just as a base having somewhere to belong to and not even in the terms of in terms of identity but in terms of having a home having um somewhere to live um and then other rights as well that come with being a national like right to work um and the protections that come with it so the civil liberties like being able to vote um freedom of speech freedom of religion all those all those type of stuff i think definitely nationality comes under qualifying um as a human right just as you would want just as like access to water or freedom of speech is a human right nationality should be in that bundle of rights if that makes sense yeah and the legal instrument that describes nationality as a human right is in the universal declaration of human rights and i think it's uh article 15 that explicitly says this point and I feel like just making someone stateless doesn't just impacts, doesn't just impacts, doesn't just <laughs> impact a person's right to nationality. But as you said, it affects their access to other human rights. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned before, uh, without nationality, like nationality just, it, it's like the identity document of who you are. It, it, you know, it protects, like you said, it gives you protection it's Mm -hmm. a way to be able to travel it's a way to access healthcare, employment it's a way nationality is a way of gaining rights if that makes Mm -hmm. sense by you by you being a national of a country it means that you have certain rights yeah and if there's and if you don't have a nationality that deprives you from all those rights too yeah and yeah i mean i wanted to ask actually how do you think nationality should be decided like what factors uh, should it should it have some sort of like uh, ethnic origin requirement like saudi arabia or should uh, it be completely free of ethnicity should there be um like what other factors can you think of that it, it, it should include yeah i don't think or yeah. maybe there should be no such thing as nationality and we should just have like you know in the eu how we have like open well how we had freedom of movement um should that apply on like a global scale like some sort of utopia. it's really interesting <laughs> you say that because like before world war one like initially people didn't have passports and people would just go into another country yeah and it wasn't until world war one and world war two this idea of threat and our borders and um you know migrants immigrants all kind of came into 
um into the yeah, yeah, yeah the being into like the political system and i i i actually don't know i feel like that's a very hard question mm-hmm. um to answer how do you think nationality should be decided i don't think ethnicity should be a factor um it's kind of like talking about gender um it's like i think we mentioned earlier on saying that citizenship uh wasn't women couldn't have citizenship or um yeah it depends on the marital status yeah and i think those kind of factors where you can't change shouldn't decide your nationality place of birth like where you're born is just uh, even that i think it's very discriminatory and it's basic because what choice did i have to be born in london and what choice did you have to be born in pakistan yeah what choice do you have with that like if you are born in a war-torn area that's not your fault and i don't know man that's a hard question like i think that's a really hard question to answer what do you same no i think it's i think it's quite difficult to uh decide what factors we should base nationality of i think i'm leaning more towards we shouldn't really have i think we should have borders but not strict borders in the sense that me being British is somewhat of like, um, like uh, me having my 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 red passport is something that's like incredibly amazing, or like I'm superior to someone who has I don't know what other colors of passports exist, but another color passport basically. They reminds me of something. Yeah, sorry, carry on. I just don't think that there should be superiority in in being one nationality above the other. But then I think if we go to the extreme of removing nationality requirements and everyone having the freedom to to be who who whatever to be from whatever country and reside in whatever country, I think going back to coming from an unrecognized country it's really problematic because even if we look at the ways in which you recognize a country to then be afforded nationality, those requirements in and of itself are really controversial. Yeah. So I don't know. I think both extremes of having an extremely hostile environment like we do in Britain, to which it's really hard to gain nationality. And then the other extreme of living in this complete kind of um, utopia land where there are no borders and we live in harmony and, and everyone has one global identity as a human being rather than I'm I'm British or I'm Kurdish or I'm Russian, I don't know. Yeah, you remind me of like two things. Um, the way I get treated because of my red British passport when I go to Pakistan mm-hmm. and um, like the like the welcomeness. The privilege, yeah. They're British. And when I went um, on Umrah, which is basically a religious pilgrimage that Muslims do. Yeah. And how I got treated there because of my red um, passport. Whereas um, the Pakistanis there who are from Pakistan, yeah. yeah, not British and have the Pakistani passport they get treated like absolute shit and this is like a religious place and there was an event I went to about um, Hajj and Umrah and mental health and they were talking about how South Asian men uh, particularly from Pakistan, Bangladesh and India um, from um, South Asian Muslim men who go to um, Saudi Arabia they have these these big like um, dreams on how Saudi Arabia is going to be mm-hmm. and when they get there they uh, and they perform um, pilgrimage and they come back their mental health actually declines and it's worse no way yeah and it's because of the treatment there because of their passport because yeah and I think like you can just see like it goes back to the point I talked about about being superior and the privileges you get from it like I have a red passport so that means like I'm British and British comes with like this kind of like wealth of like status and stuff. Yeah, status it's the and... same when I go back to Smiland like the treatment that you get in the airport actually the treatment that you get in the airport is 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 one of utmost respect but also I, I if I'm not mistaken but the last time I went in 2014 Basically, there's a certain tax that you have to pay when you go into the country as a foreigner, which is insane because I'm ethnically Somali oh. and I still have to pay that tax when I go into the country. Um, but anyway, you go in and you pay it and it, the payment, the amount that you pay depends on your passport. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if I'm not mistaken, you pay more if you're like uh, British, Canadian, American, um, European 
compared to people who are coming in from other African countries. Like, uh, like yeah. even though I'm treated with a lot more respect because I'm from, like, Britain, people who are coming from other African countries don't pay the same tax I do. Yeah. I get that. I guess it's because they think you... Because... You're well, from Britain, like, you have the money, like... Yeah, it's like the sixth, I think, I believe, sixth richest country in the world or something like that. We have mm-hmm. a lot of wealth in this country. But, yeah, I think... Even without that, I think it's just a perception of coming from the West and you're some sort of... Yeah, like... you just remind... Yeah, you remind me of something else. Like, if you are British and you want to go on Umrah or Hajj, the... Yeah. Co- you pay more for the visa whereas if you're if you have a pakistani passport yeah you pay less for the visa mm. and um it's yeah if i go there and i'm british i get treated way better and if someone who's pakistani goes there they they get treated like shit it's and sad with- that that distinction yeah. even exists and yeah like it's just insane that our passport has that much it has that amount of privilege and status that comes with it Mm -hmm. maybe that's a reason why um like the british government has made it so hard to get it because they know the privilege that comes with it but also the responsibility that they would then have to that person as a member of our society which i get is a horrible argument because you're then saying this person isn't worth the responsibility but maybe that was theresa may's aim with the whole hostile environment No, but that's just insane because there are 66 million people in this country. Three million people, I believe, are black, British. And Mm -hmm. we have um, three million who are South Asian, I think. So in that kind of, if you look at that... In that grand scheme of things, yeah. You're telling me that we have less than 10 million people like that are from an ethnic background and the rest everyone else living in the country are white british people yeah and yet i don't know there's there's this all this whole kind of like moral this panic that the media stigma yeah this yeah that immigrants are coming here there's they're like this big responsibility um, an imminent threat that like they're coming right now like there's a sense of rush associated with it exactly and that's it once they're here it's over it's over no it's more not, nhs no yeah. more fish and chips when exactly pubs are overrun exactly <laughs> when when these restaurants that help the british economy are mm-hmm. from different backgrounds the economy different... is is run by like the reason why the economy runs in the uk is based on the money brought in by immigrant workers exactly without immigrants it will actually collapse exactly and uh, yeah and and i and i just don't understand (laughs) i I can't even sometimes when i get into this kind of um thought process or like debate with someone it's just they they i don't don't know how i would speak to like a white english person who told me to go back home like i don't know what i would actually say to them i don't know i just tend to ignore those type of things because once like what do you even say back to that and Firstly, I feel like even before, what would you say back to that? It's not my responsibility to prove that I'm British to you. Yeah. Like, who who gave you the position of gate- gatekeeper for Britishness? Yeah. Suddenly, you become like yeah, I know. the key <laughs> warrior in knowing who yeah. and is not Brit- who is and is not British. Like, it it's doesn't like concern lady, me whether Billy down the road thinks I'm British or not. Yeah. Sorry, that's like the lazy lady I go to. <laughs> well, I don't go to it anymore, by the way, guys. I, <laughs> I have a different um i go to a different person now uh, so should we start with the shamima begum shamima shamima sorry i just hear like i don't know which way it said yeah shamima shamima begum case yeah so shamima begum we the media is often referred to as the jihadi bride um and in 2015 she left her family in bethnal green and travelled to Syria with two school friends to marry a Dutch man. Um, she was 15 at the time, and she joined ISIS, also known as Daesh, a terrorist group. They, they are an extreme extremist Islamist group who claims to be Muslim and gained international attention in 2014 when they seized swathes of territory in Syria and Iraq, and they have been known to be involved with the most brutal, horrific attacks and other activities. She was found heavily pregnant uh, by a Times journalist in a Syrian refugee camp in February 2018. 
her husband uh, is no longer with her. I think he's back in Holland, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's like no media reports on where he's at. Yeah, but I think the last thing I read was, I think I heard it on Loose Women. Yeah. <laughs> not a good source, but I think it was Loose Women where they said he's in Holland. Um, the former Home Secretary, Savage Javid, stripped her of her citizenship later that month. Uh, Shamima Begum and her lawyers appealed, arguing that it was illegal to revoke her citizenship as it exposed her to a real risk of death or in or inhumane and degrading treatment. Um, to have also revoked her citizenship means she was rendered stateless, which is against international law. Um, she's now 20 years old and has lost three children who have died from illnesses. So... Shamima Begum appeared at the Special Immigration Appeals Commission to challenge the decision to revoke her citizenship. It was decided that Begum was lawfully made stateless because, so un, so from um, the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, they said that uh, it was lawful that she was made stateless because she could turn to Bangladesh as her, as her parents were from Bangladesh for citizenship despite Bangladesh refusing to accept her back. And I wanted to add something about this. So I read online that under uh, Bangladeshi law, if you are under 21, yeah, if you're under 21, you can claim you are automatically a Bangladeshi citizen. Okay. So if your parents were born in Bangladesh, like, yeah, like, she like Shamima, yeah. And because if, uh, and she hasn't turned 21 yet. So if you're under 21, you are still seen as a Bangladeshi citizen. Um, but after 21, if you don't try to apply for it, apply for it, yeah, or reclaim the citizenship, then you're no longer a Bangladeshi citizen. Okay. So this is why they're saying, oh, she can go back to Bangladesh because under their uh, laws, she is still a Bangladeshi citizen. Um, uh, sorry. So, so the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. Um, they had three findings on why they felt that what why they felt that her being stateless was lawful, and the first one was that the deprivation order did not make um, Shamima stateless because she's a Bangladeshi citizen, like I just uh, said earlier. Uh, the second one was the deprivation order did not breach government policy or breaches of human rights overseas. And the third one was it didn't matter that Miss um, Begum could not have an effective or fair appeal in her circumstances. So it wasn't until last Thursday, I think, the decision was uh, appealed, overturned. Yeah, overturned. Yeah. And it was partially, partially, over, yeah, yeah. partially overturned, actually. And the judges said that she was allowed to return to the UK to have a fair hearing as she could not make her case from the camp. Uh, it went further on to say that they felt that the fairness and just um, of the case was more important than the national security concerns. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about that? I think it's really yeah. important that they made that point because often when we look at, um, or even if we look specifically at the Shimon Reagan case, people, the main argument that people say is, well, she went off to join ISIS. ISIS is the biggest threat that we face right now. Therefore, it's a national security concern and she shouldn't be able to come in. But I think even if we take away um, any threat that she may she may be a, to our national security, fairness, principles of fairness, justice and the rule of law come before anything. Because just as our episode last week, we looked at how it's the foundation of British society, whether that comes to our political system or just our values at large in society. Fairness, justice... And the rule of law is what underpins this legal system. So to say that we are going to negate fairness, justice and the rule of law because this person chose to do something, even though maybe we can have a discussion on whether there was actually consent there, is extremely dangerous for me. Because what kind of precedent does that does that then set for um, the government to then rely on in the future if we can say... Yes, the rule of law is important, but it has conditions. I don't think it should be like that. I think it should be the rule of law is the rule of law, period. Yeah, I agree with you, by the way. I feel that, um, it, like we covered uh, yesterday, if the Home Secretary can just strip off anyone's citizenship, it gives them this unchecked power. Yeah. It, it, it's not fair. 
you need to go through like the justice system you need we need to we need to treat like like you said she needs um, to have a fair trial yeah she needs like, a fair if tri- you had a murderer if i went out and killed someone i would even though and i admitted to killing someone i would still go to trial yeah you wouldn't just say okay khalas, she's admitted that's it yeah. you still have your case presented so that kind of um goes on to my second question so do you think stripping off her nationality was correct morally and legally i think legally we've established now that it it isn't it isn't legal yeah um actually hold on maybe i should take that back we haven't established that it was illegal to revoke her citizenship we've established that it's illegal for her to not be able to come back to appeal the revocation of her citizenship yeah if that makes sense yeah i think if we look at um her actual fight for regaining citizenship i think again taking away that citizenship away from her sets a really dangerous precedent that anyone who acts out of what is considered um not even legal but what is considered against britain or against british interest is suddenly going to be stripped of their british identity is really dangerous yeah, I agree with you. And I feel like if someone from another country got radicalised there and committed a crime in the UK um, and then that country refused to take back their citizen, how would citizen? How would people in Britain feel? It's not fair to do that. Like, people... It, it, it's just hypocritical. Like, if, Do you mean if someone was radicalised within Britain no, and they stayed in Britain? No, like, if, let's say, um, someone got radicalised in France yeah and then they committed a crime in britain yeah yeah um you know and france said oh that's it they're stateless we're not taking them back okay where does that then leave britain yeah then that means britain has okay i get you that's not fair it's not fair to like say oh um in this case oh she should just stay in syria and that's syrian's responsibility now the kurdish um refugee camp or Syrian refugee camp that she's staying at it's their responsibility now it's not because if that happened to us we wouldn't we wouldn't take it mm-hmm. if, if France made that like the example is France but if France did that to their citizen Britain would be like no this is your citizen you you can't just make them stateless and expect us to um yeah look after I think it- that same argument goes for um saying that she can return to Bangladesh I don't know if she, how much Shima Begum identifies with her Bangladeshi identity, if she's even... No, I read, like, she has never been back to Bangladesh, though. So I don't understand how how you can um, then expect for her to be sent back there and become Bangladesh's responsibility, even though she's she's of ethnic origin. She's not... Even though she can claim it because she's under 21, she has no kind of assimilation or any kind of ties with it if we look back at that definition that i gave earlier yeah she she doesn't meet she doesn't meet that definition to be a bangladeshi bangladeshi national yeah and this kind of goes um ties in with like the practical implications of her being stateless like we talked about before if she's stateless it means that like we talked about like how identity documents are so important with uh, from healthcare to uh, applying for things to ba- to houses to banks to like even collecting your orders um like the consequence of her being stateless and britain not bringing her back is that she has no protection whatsoever yeah. and it was this case that um that we learned i don't i don't know if you remember but in immigration law in our module we learned this case um I think it was called Al Al Jeddah, Al, um, the case of Al Jeddah, and in that case, it had an Iraqi national, um, not Iraqi national, sorry, he was an Iraqi man, and the UK had deprived him, and they said, oh, it's the same kind of case with um Shamima, Shamima, can't say her name anymore, <laughs> Shamima, um, Pagum that oh, um, he had the ability to apply for Iraqi nationality. Mm-hmm. So they had deprived him and he wasn't an Iraqi national, but they said, oh, he can still apply because um, he had the um, ability to. And then uh, in Supreme Court, it was found that the British government was unlawful and the Home Office were unlawful because at that time that they had deprived him from his nationality, he was no, he had no other nationality. Yeah. He was to that date, he was not an Iraqi national. He was a British national 
whose citizenship was deprived and to that date there was no other nationality and that's like the same with kind of um her as well even even though it's kind of complicated because under Bangladeshi law if you're under 21 you are a Bangladeshi citizen Mm -hmm. but she hasn't done any kind of actions to like show that um that she like has any interest in going back there exactly um maybe if we look at where this kind of leaves Shemaima now um this ruling now this appeal court ruling means that Shemaima can return to the UK to appeal the decision on her the revocation of her citizenship the court appears to have proceeded on the basis that Ms Begum would be able to obtain a uniform format form travel document from the Kurdish authorities um whether this is going to actually be feasible in practice remains to be seen um house the home office sorry have stated that they will appeal the court of appeal decision so this means that again this decision could be overturned which means that she might not actually be able to come back to the uk to fight the decision on the revocation of her citizenship the special immigration appeals commission um has decided to consider the impact that revoking her citizenship would have on her human rights, particularly looking at Articles 2 of the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, which is protects our right to life, and Article 3, that no one should be subject to torture or inhumane and degrading treatment or punishment. Yeah, so the Special Immigration Appeal Commission, they need to look into Article 2 and 3 before they, try, before they kind of make this decisions to deprive her from a citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think... Um, she has broken any laws or has committed any offence in going to join ISIS or in coming to back in, or in choosing to come back to Britain, like or just the whole journey, the whole thing. Because I think, sorry, go on. So, like, the reason why I ask you this is is because she hasn't been on trial for anything, and the British government haven't put her on trial. They they haven't gone through any criminal process. Nothing. They've just deprived her from her citizenship. So do so do you think she's committed any offence? I don't really know the laws surrounding leaving a country to join a terrorist group. So, like, I don't know what, what offence that comes under. Is it treason? I don't so, know if it qualifies so, that. Yeah, so basically, like, it would be branched into, like, two kind of sections, um, immigration and criminal. Immigration in the context of the way she went into Syria... Was it, because um, I heard that apparently she took her sister's passport, which I don't know how that worked, but she took her sister's passport and that's how she got into Syria, which comes under like fraud. Okay. Um, and then the criminal aspect is that under UK law, we have like a list of prescribed groups. So prescribed groups mean like groups that are a threat to national security. So ISIS is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. And... um is supporting because you see in her interviews she seems very like she's said that she believes in isis and you know when it came to the manchester attacking she kind of like you know gave just i don't i don't even know if she justified it or what she said but she supported isis and by supporting a group onto criminal offense but they haven't proven whether she's supported this group because all she's done is marry a isis man all she's done is marry an isis man yeah i think i think okay i think i think we should probably break it down i think that in and of itself her going to syria marrying this man those actions that she's done has obviously shown her support for isis which is in the prescribed group that you mentioned which which in turn is 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 an offense but we have to look at um the argument of consent to what degree does she make an informed decision and to what degree does this come under uh, grooming like what capacity did she have to fully consent to this because the argument of her being groomed is one that's really important because that's what influenced her decision to even go to Syria in the first place but the reason why I ask this is because I think it was on Loose Women as well. We watch too much of that. <laughs> Where they said, "Does being married to an ISIS fighter, like so, under UK law, it is elite, it is a criminal offence to support a prescribed group, so okay. ISIS. But does being married to an ISIS fighter, because the the UK haven't put her on trial on anything, yeah, does it mean by being married to an ISIS fighter or someone who is part of a prescribed group, does that mean that you are also?" um 
a criminal and it, it, like, it poses the question like for example if you get married to a drug dealer I know this is like two different examples yeah but if you get married to a drug dealer does that mean you you're support, guilty by like, association yeah you support their work like I think if we look at like basic like, legal principles of like obviously like that guilt by association thing I don't think she should be guilty of her husband's actions but I think if you look at the actions she's taken as an independent person to go to Syria, to marry this man, to stay there for three, I think it was three years that she was there. Yeah. Do whatever acts that she had committed over there. That blatantly does show support for her husband's actions and for ISIS. But I think that support is negated by the fact that she was groomed. I don't think she made a well-informed decision because the kind of choices I was making at 15 was like, I don't even know what friend am I meeting up with and where are we going on the weekend? Not, should I go through Turkey to get to Syria or should I go straight to Syria? Like, do you get what I mean? Yeah. I think we have to fully account for the fact that she was groomed. Yeah. There was an article I think I was talking about with you before um, by Janice Turner and she wrote in the Times and she was saying stuff like a young woman being young women should be able to be devout young women can be as devout and radical as young men and we shouldn't assume that they're victims and she was talking about this in the context of um this case and that you know if she wants to be as radical as she wants we shouldn't just say that she's a victim does that make sense yeah but i find that deeply problematic yeah because i think she's not like we talked about before she wasn't the age of consent so you can't get married under the age of 18 in UK. Uh, you can get married if you're 16, 17, but you need uh, parental, consent. parental consent. And this is also Islamically as well. And, you need the same parental consent. Yeah, yeah, you need parental consent. And like her leaving as 15, she was a child. She wasn't even an adult. She was a child when she left. I know people say, oh, when I was at 15, I wasn't doing so-and-so and whatever. Yeah. But, but we they weren't being groomed either. Yeah, they weren't being groomed either. And we don't know how long she was groomed for. Did it start when she was 13? And then at 15, she... But you years... also have to think of how fragile a person has to be to be able to be groomed. Like, what kind of mindset was she in be- like for her to be able to be groomed? Yeah. There must have been something that made her be susceptible to what to this grooming. And throughout the whole time, like from 15 to 20, she was pregnant three times and mm-hmm. her kids passed away. All three, and, yeah. Yeah, and she w- like you can just see, even in the interview that she gave, the last one, she had a 20, I think he died at 20 um, days. Um, the child was 20 days old and she's, like, like you know, you can just see like when someone's pregnant they are in a very very vulnerable um position yeah and her being pregnant three times in the course of such a young age yeah yeah, or the course of uh 15 to 20 and losing them children like it's like she's like she's vulnerable she's in a very vulnerable um situation and i feel like the media like you know in the beginning you said she's known as like jihadi bride and they just like put these like terms on her and um They've tried to, I guess, make her look, I, I guess, make it harder for the viewers, for people in Britain to sympathise with her by saying these kind of words. Jihad yeah, definitely. Um, They're using the stigma that's associated with the word jihad, or yeah. jihad to um, kind of sensationalise Shemima, but not even sensationalise, dehumanise her. Yeah. Like, I feel like the, the entire portrayal that I've seen of Shemima hasn't been one of a teen mom or um, a mother who's gone through uh, the death of three children or someone who has like deep issues in terms of her mental health. It's been someone who's, they've, they've portrayed her as someone who has been fully aware of her decisions, who is someone who's made full consent in going to Syria and someone who's aware of her actions. I don't think someone who's well informed of what they're going into would make that decision. Yeah. They I don't find... take into account the, the depth of yeah. grooming. Yeah. I find it funny because when it comes to Muslim women in general, we don't have autonomy. 
I mean, that's what British people see it as. Yeah. We autonomy when it comes autonomy, <laughs> autonomy when it comes to like our dress sense or our anything just off. in yeah. life. Yeah, we are like these people that need to be saved. But when it comes to her, she is a well-informed, completely autonomous, independent person. A kid who decided to go serial. And she knew exactly what she was doing. Mm. And there's no that, oh, we need to save her or any of that. Um, it's, I think it goes, it ties into the idea of what is the perfect victim. And they don't see her as a, they don't see her, because she's not, I guess, because in the media, she's not crying. Like, that's a she's factor. She's not remorseful, yeah. Yeah, she's not remorseful. She doesn't, like, she's not, yeah, she doesn't show any of that. And her, like, tone and her language uh people think oh she doesn't care and um we shouldn't bring her back and yeah i, I guess it goes down it ties down to this idea of victim like like is she supposed to be crying the whole time like she, i for me when i see those videos i see a girl who's just so vulnerable and she just doesn't she, she I think has she's been so desensitized like yeah who's desensitized. going to cry about losing citizenship when people are dying on your doorstep exactly yeah when she's been through so many things when her own kids have died in her hands in her arms who is going to cry when a times reporter is asking you whether you're remorseful yeah i i agree with you a hundred percent and so do you think we have um a two-tier system in the uk with when it comes to citizenship from this case yeah no definitely i think I don't even think it's two tier i think it's more than that like <laughs> I, I think it's an entire hierarchy in terms of anyone who resembles the white british person is like top of the list and then there's kind of preferential treatment for those who are um those who can look or can pass as um who are ethnically ambiguous yeah eth- that's the term i'm looking for people who are ethnically ambiguous yeah and in the middle and then the rest of us are kind of like mushed and piled at the bottom yeah it's like with the windrush generation we see the whole it, scandal is insane scan- yeah and especially when you're i feel like when you're muslim it's just like i don't even know they you have to really prove your britishness in this mm-hmm. country and with her particularly um like i always think if she was white for instance or if she wasn't muslim and a person of color um would she would britain bring her back like would they you know say that i yes. think the, the the response from the media would be completely different yeah because we do know other um white people who have joined and mm-hmm. they've tried to like get them back like i think one guy i don't know if you remember his name um i think his name was john letts Jardy John, John. I, I don't is that remember. the same person? I, I don't, don't remember. And um, no, but this guy, I think Jihadi John. Did he die? I don't know. I just remember the name Jihadi John. I know one guy who came back, and um, or he was trying to come back, and he was uh, white, and he converted into Islam, and he went to go join this group, and he tried to come back, and like the responses, the media responses to him was just like completely different. I don't even remember hearing about that. I, maybe if I send you like a link, maybe you'd remember. But my point goes back to this: that the like response, even the fact that you don't even remember, yeah, yeah is just yeah, it's just show, yeah, yeah, how that. much unreported it is compared to her, where everyone in the media is just talking about her yeah. and saying that she shouldn't be able to come back. Um, do you think like do you think there's like an alternative to not stripping her citizenship, and do you think like the British government can send her back. Back to where? Bangladesh or Syria? Syria. Because Bangladesh said they're, they're not. They they said it like they are not taking her back. Sorry, what was the first part of the question? Um, Do you think that there's an alternative to not stripping? Yeah, What's the, the alternative al- is following the rule of law. Yeah. Like the alternative is to have not have stripped her of her citizenship, to have allowed her to come back and face trial. Like, that's what you would do with any other crime. So I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, but I don't understand why this crime is being treated any different. Yeah. Obviously, this crime isn't on par with the average thief or, I don't know, whatever other crimes. But I think it should face the same due course 
in terms of the legal processes yeah and I feel like so my personal opinions are that like she should be back because like she should be held accountable and investigated for yeah how this has happened in Britain and I think like the United Kingdom need to set like some sort of precedent and exercise what we claim um what we claim that we live in this kind of just and fair society equal mm-hmm. society and more importantly I think that the UK need to make a strategy for children born under ISIS and women because because I find it insane how they haven't created like this strategy for uh, children and women because there was a possibility that she was going to come back for those four years that she went yeah. from 15 to 20 five years sorry that she went there was a possibility that they would come back and previously we have seen that uh other people who have joined isis have wanted to come back and the fact that the british government don't have a strategy a strategy in place for children of british parents who are born yeah um under is it's just insane because how many times are the british government going to deprive a person of the citizenship mm-hmm. how many times are we going to do that and we need I to think, like yeah i think the other the, the, the other important thing is that just because we think that she should come back and face trial here doesn't mean we sympathize with um someone who's agreed or consented to doing terrorist activities yeah being supporting the rule of law and wanting legal and wanting her to go through the due legal process does not equal terrorist sympathizer i think that distinction is really important to be made because often in the media if you if you are seen to support or defend shemima you're automatically seen as well you're anti-britain or you're anti-us and you suddenly become other but i think it's just important to realize that pro shemima doesn't mean pro isis it means pro legal processes yeah because it goes back down to the point that uh politicians will have this unchecked power and also we're not holding people accountable for their actions, actions exactly we're not saying that she should be able to like you know freely... live here freely and come yeah. back and because everything's good yeah. it's obviously a national security threat and you know in the we need to think about the best interests of britain mm-hmm. uh, however her children dying especially the last kid that died because he was a british citizen and she even you know she even asked for help she said you know my baby's ill and they need um it needs medical assistance and no one gave the child medical assistance despite the child being british and w- we don't agree with what she's done and we don't yeah. think to be able to like live here and just you know do whatever she wants Resume it's just life how it was before she went yeah because her because the british government is accountable for that um innocent child that died because they knew that she had a kid that was ill and the british government are also accountable for her because she was groomed here and she was radicalized here yeah she was radicalized here and they had no strategy in place to help her even when she left the Home Office said that she was a vul- I think the Home Office said she was a vulnerable uh, person. Person. And yeah, I think I just think that there needs to be some there needs to be some de-radicalization strategy for these people. How many times is it going to happen? Yeah. For them to like just say no, we're going to deprive you and not take accountability. Like, how many times will, are we going to do that? No, yeah. Yeah, that's really it. I mean, do you have anything else? <laughs> I think that's everything. Thanks for tuning in. And I guess you'll hear from us next Monday. Yeah. Um, For our episode. I think it's on consent. Yeah, we're still deciding. Deciding what it is. But yeah, see you next Monday. Bye. Bye.